Hi, I'm Robert Martin, and this is the Men of Magic Podcast, a one-on-one interview with the best that Magic the Gathering has to offer. Alan, you have a unique perspective on Magic history. You're a Hall of Famer and a driving force behind MTGO. What does that mean to you? Well, it's being a Hall of Famer is something that you never forget, and you're always it's always part of your life. You can go places, you can do things, but being being part of Magic Online had a had a strange feeling because a lot of people were like, I'm not really sure I want to vote for Alan because he can't take advantage of it. It was actually sort of a bittersweet time because I had this feeling of, why should I not get in just because I was helping working on Magic Online? Now, fortunately, this all worked out, but... It was a very nerve-wracking time and very, very disheartening when I heard people discussing it that way. You were part of the original Hall of Fame class. What does that honor mean to you? Oh, that that was really exciting. I I really didn't have much of a of an expectation to get in, and when when that happened, I was very very pleased and very honored. Like getting in on. In your first year on the ballot, whichever year that is, I think, I think that's such a nice reward, and it, it shows that people really thought that your contributions were important, and it's, it's really been cool just knowing that that's what happened. I reviewed your records against your class, and there are two things that stood out to me. You are two and two lifetime versus John Finkel and 0 and three against Tommy Hovey. So playing against Tommy Hovey was, in many ways, a very frustrating experience. Um, I remember two of the matches very well. Um, Tommy Hovey, we got to game three, um, and the loser knocks us out of contention, and he mulligans from no parts of his combo to a hand with every part of the combo. And I I was just very, very frustrated in that one. And he's and in Rome when I played him, I was playing the white hate deck, which literally can just totally shut down a um can totally shut down his deck if he doesn't go off right away and he he starts I start my turn with my planes, and he dumps his entire hand, but doesn't have the the Talarian Academy to go off. And I tutor for there's a spell that I forget, and it's an enchantment that says beginning your upkeep, destroy all artifacts and play. So I tutor for this, put it down. He's just basically going to lose and go home next turn unless he draws the Talarian Academy, and he drew it off the top. So. As I think back of the games against Hovey, it's, it's very frustrating because both of those games were situations where I just about had it. It was right there in my hand, and it just evaporated. Isn't that one of the beautiful things about Magic, is that you can have the complete control of a game or see the situation and then all suddenly they pull the card to save them? Yeah, normally you try to make sure they can't pull a card to save them, but it was sort of hard to do that turn two against Talarian Academy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny, because, you know, you realize how powerful that card was back then, and that combination, how it would just go off, and it, you're right, it was over, and it it's pretty simple with that one. Yes, so John Finkel, he's got... I felt like I had a tech edge against John almost all the games, and he still his play skill is just so strong that I'm only two and two against him, and that's that's a that's a big credit to how good John is. There's an interesting story about Worlds up in Seattle. We've made we've made the top eight, and there's actually a day in between because they're running the team event, and they take all the top eight people out. And we're in Seattle, and we're walking around, and John and I are talking. And he's 
busy telling me how much better his deck is than mine and how <laughs> how how this is going to be a disaster for me. And I'm sitting there busy agreeing with him that I just don't like my chances. And then he beats me, and afterwards he's like, I'm so surprised I beat you. I just, uh, I was putting on a facade. I wanted you to be depressed about it. I I really didn't think I had much chance. I'm like, yeah, I'm really surprised to beat you too. I was trying to make you overconfident and telling you that your deck was so much better. But I don't think you win that game very much. And we both pretty much agreed. Tech-wise, the, the Living Death deck that I was running just dominant over that deck. But that day, it just didn't want to cooperate. And he got the win again. That is an interesting trip down memory lane because... Those little side things, you don't really see anymore in Magic. Nowadays in Magic, it seems like there's less gentlemanly conversation like that. More times than not, everybody's just kind of the one, like Channel Fireball will work with themselves, and other guys are just kind of socially talking. Uh, to have the ability to have a little time with your opponent and... Play, try to play mind games back and forth with each other. That, that had to be a lot of fun from both of your perspectives. Yeah, it's it's a sort of thing that could only happen at Worlds. Oh, like, at a Pro Tour, you know you've made Top 8, you've got a few hours to get in some playtesting to eat, and then you've got to go get some sleep. At Worlds, with that extra day in between, and with them specifically pulling you out so they can do the photo session and everything else... It's that's when that can actually happen. When you actually get, you know, we were all together. We get to know the rest of the top eight, and only at Worlds does that happen. You've never won a GP or a Pro Tour, but you have five top eights in Pro Tour events. There's two questions about this. First, do you think that's the missing piece of your career? And if so, is what do you plan to do about it? Um, I don't really look at it as a missing piece. It would be nice to have, but the top eight is single elimination. And no matter how good you do before you get there, one one loss and you're done. Like, when we were, when we played on the team event, we were in, guaranteed in the top eight. So actually, it was top four at that point, four teams, before we got our first loss. And our second loss was in, in the finals. So we may have actually lost less than other teams at that event. I'm not sure. But actually finalizing it out, I'd love to do it. But in order to make another top eight, I have to play as much as I used to. And I used to play 30, 40 hours a week. And... With a daughter and a full-time job and a full f- family here, I just can't do that. So I don't, I don't see that happening unless my daughter decides she wants to play. <laughs> and if she decides she wants to play and qualifies for a pro tour, then I might have enough time. My second question is, you've had five pro tour top eight, which is a remarkable feat. With the challenges of the pro tour... What was it that made you so successful at the biggest stage? For a long time, it was just being steady. Um, there was there's plenty of individual things, but it was a long time before if I had a chance to make top eight with three rounds to go, I failed. And I think I just performed very, very well under pressure. Um, there's There's all sorts of stuff like, Having a great team helps you make great decks. But I didn't really make it to the top eight on the decks that I made in a constructed. I made it to the top eight on decks that I made in a limited environment. Drafting and the like is really about building a deck continuously. Every three rounds you're building a new deck. And the ability to think on your feet and just build something that's not what everyone's used to. I think just being being different helped me a lot there. You played against Kai 
when Kai was the German juggernaut and had a one in three lifetime record against him, including the Pro Tour Barcelona finals. Your thoughts on Kai? Kai's a very, very solid player, obviously based on his results. And he's a he's a nice guy too. I, I really enjoy it. There's a there's a funny thing about Barcelona. If you look at the pictures of of Kai winning, you'll notice that it's still light outside. But if you actually look at when he won, it wasn't light outside. What happened at, at Barcelona was they needed to make sure they got the picture of whoever won, but they were on very limited time. So they took the winning picture before the last round. And somewhere out there is a picture of me winning Barcelona. <laughs> now, that would be an interesting find. Did that do anything to you psychologically, maybe, having to take a picture of a trophy before you got it? No, no. Actually, I was sort of just over the moon and having to recover from the the match against um, Dan Clegg, which where I had I was down 0-2 with him basically casting his bomb that can win every game if it's not stopped in the third game and coming back to win everything uh, and to actually get past him. And at that point, I was pretty much very relaxed. Uh, there was nothing was going to phase me and fear me at that point because <laughs> I'd just been through a really big scare and it just nothing was significant anymore. The best of five format when it comes to those events, do you like the best of five format or do you like the best of three format, which is what normally happens at GPs? Oh, I definitely prefer the best of five. It just, it's, it gets rid of more and more of the chance that the more you can play, the more the better player is going to win. Now, you said you were down 0-2, and you were basically facing his best threat every time. What is going through your mind in that situation? Well, uh, that one, no, normally... You're very much, I can't deal with this spell. I have to make sure it doesn't happen. Barcelona was strange because I was running four colors with an option to go to the fifth. And I have brought in Spite. I already had Spite and Malice. I brought the, the island in to be able to counter it. And that time, I literally had the counter in hand, so I knew I could handle it when it came up. But still, you know... You're like, okay, I can handle this one thing. What's going to come? And if he casts something other than that, then you're trying to decide if you, if you have to burn the one spell that can protect you against that. Fortunately, it became very obvious that he had the spell, so it was easy to make those decisions. But when you've got somebody who's got a spell that's just dominant and you're playing against them, you're really trying to race them and just get them dead before they can draw it. And the deck I had was not really a racing deck. It had all sorts of big, fat creatures. And that puts a lot of pressure on you, knowing that the one thing you really want to do right now, you can't. Hmm. You talked about not being in an invitational as something you really wanted. Why? Because the Invitational was this very cool, laid-back thing. It's People went to the Invitational to show off cool, interesting, fun decks. A lot of what I've done since I've been invited, since I've gotten into the Hall of Fame, is to build some really cool decks, show up, play, play the event, and then go off and gunsling, or sometimes even just go to just gunsling entirely on its own, which Wizards very thankfully will just help me do by just bringing me along on for some of these events and being able to just showcase here's some cool things that you may not have known you can do and here's here's a way to make them at least a reasonable deck that's really something that i enjoy and there was no better showcase for this 
that than the Invitational. I'm sad now that it seems like there won't even be a good showcase for it at Pro Tours because the public won't be at them. Yeah, that is an interesting concept. Do you, as a fan, prefer the interaction with the with the people, or would you prefer to see more coverage on the Internet? I definitely prefer just being with the people, talking with the people. You can be personal and just chat and get feel like you're part of a community there. When, when you're watching something on TV, you're not really part of a community. I want to talk about something. We did a world's draft together, and you were openly talking at the table that if we all work together... It would benefit everyone. Why is this so? It's not quite if everybody works together, everybody benefits. If everybody works together, nobody benefits. If everybody but one set of people works together, everybody except that one sort of people work together. And we should make sure people understand that this was a pretty casual, relaxed draft. It was not something serious where we were talking. The, the easy way to look at it is if I'm sitting next to somebody, and we're staying out of each other's colors, and if I have no use for a spell, I give it to you, and if you have no use for a spell, you give it to me. We both benefit from that, because we get the spells that the other person doesn't need, and if you're not doing that, you just don't get those spells. So it's really in everybody's best interest to be cooperating with their neighbors. The person who really showed this to me best was Brian Hacker. He he really, he was one of the very first people to truly understand this dynamic and it is a very strong dynamic. If you look at Worlds, I passed Garuk twice. Both times, pack three, I opened it up, went, huh, well I can't use it, and just gave it to the person on my left. But if you look at the decks I got, I had some pretty solid decks. One of them was like four of those nice lightning bolt spells. Those are pretty good. Forget what they're called. You mentioned that when we were talking at Worlds that you passed it a second time, and I just stared at you like you wouldn't think that would be done. But every time you said, I passed it, I won. Yeah, I, I never lost to it. I, I played against it. I beat the guy who had it. The silly thing was, first draft, I passed it to David Williams, and David Williams took a look at it and went, huh, I don't need this, and passed it to the next guy. So clearly he agreed with me. We also had Pro Tour LA 1997. You said it was your best chance to win a Pro Tour, even though you'd come in second at Team and Limited in 99 and Pro Tour Barcelona in 2001. Why was 97, that Pro Tour, your best chance to win? It was limited. I had a very, very solid deck. It came down to the last the last game against Hobie, and I just, I just didn't get the land for it. Again, Hobie's good at just... I, I look at games with Hobie and wish they were games. It's sort of sad. But at the same time... He'd also had troubles in that match, too. He had he had sat there and watched me army ants off his entire block of land because he only drew his forests and his burn spell, so he couldn't do anything against it. So he had a he had a bad game just like I did, you know. And it's easy to forget that your opponent got screwed in a game too. Um, but yeah, I was I was one game from actually winning that. And then David Mills was just, as we, as it turned out, wasn't able to actually win the finals or even get through them because of the rules problems he was having. So it's sort of tongue-in-cheek when I say that because David got himself DQ'd so there was, or relegated, so there, that actual match was the one for the finals as well. And I had to win one more there. If you look at um, the team event or the one against Kai, I had to win two more, or the team had to win two more. So those were two wins away, while as 
against Hovey, it was just one win away. Antoine Ruel's bio for the Hall of Fame, he talks about Pro Tour New York 1999 and playing against yourself and Brian Sheldon and Kurt Bergner and how you did bad things to his team. How good of a team was that that you were on? It was really good, and what made it good was not only were the people on it really solid, but we just gelled really well, and just our personalities were good. We were willing, each person was willing to say, okay, I'll go ahead with the group consensus, and they weren't, no one put themselves ahead of anything, of anybody else, and said, this is, I believe this is true and stuck to it. If both of the other, if you couldn't convince the other two, you were willing to just say, okay, well, we'll do it this way then. And that was, that event was, was scary for me for a different reason. Selden and Bergner did not show up till the morning of the event, which I didn't know about. So I get there really early. I spend the entire time watching other people draft. Not getting to draft myself because my teammates aren't here. Go to bed like at midnight because with no idea if I'm going to get to play the next day because I still am missing two teammates. Show up in the morning and and they're there. So it was a big relief there. And then we like there's a there's a big red dragon that you can see that we don't take in either. I'm not sure if it's the semifinals or the finals. There was this really strange thing. Like, we had opened it in in the actual limited event, the sealed, three times. All three decks, we'd opened it. And all three decks, the person who got it had never won with it. And just it was just this dead card the entire time. So, so we open it, and I'm like, oh, we should take that. And Sullivan and Bergner are like, uh-uh. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'd had the discussion earlier, but they were very adamant that that card <laughs> loses games. <laughs> and, like, we passed it around and let them have it, and everyone said, what are you thinking afterwards? And we're like, well, we, we've got three data points that say that thing stinks. <laughs> so that that was actually a very interesting um, event because it was the first time they did the team event and they set it up so that one team gets all three picks before the other. And what happened is by watching everybody and not getting to play myself, I got to see how everybody was drafting. And they were all pretty much doing the same sort of thing. And then without getting to play or anything else, my mind was just sitting there going, how do I mess them up? How do I take this draft, knowing that that's what they're going to do, and really throw a wrench in it, and what I, what I came up with was, always have them draft first, and then based on what colors they're doing, like their A player, your, your, the, your C player is going to draft in front of, so he just first picked moves into their color. Whatever their colors are, you're just going to move in, and you're just counter-drafting in that seat and building solid decks in the other seats. And people were very unprepared for this. And the worst one was uh, Mike Long, who was smart enough to have figured out what happened. And they decided that what they were going to do was draft the best card every time and worry about colors later. And, and, like, we got confused, and we couldn't figure out what they were doing, so we just started drafting good decks for ourselves. And then they wound up with these nightmare decks that couldn't actually do anything because they were five colors. So it worked out for us in the end. But he at least saw the problem and tried to come to a solution to it. The whole team concept, you know on the side they do team drafts like crazy. They're Whether... They're the commentators in the booth or fellow professionals. They're always team drafting. Now, I know for coverage, it's supposedly difficult to have uh, team situations like this. Should this be something they should consider bringing back just because you could have such fascinating teams put together? The team event is a great event for camaraderie. 
but a lot of what the Pro Tour is about is allowing people to really see the actual event, to, to really to see Magic being showcased in a way that's, apart from anything else, interesting to them. And the problem with the team event is it's just not interesting to the spectators. And as much as it's nice and it's fun to be playing Magic to make money, etc., and that's what you are as a pro, you also, as a professional, have to realize that the reason you're here is the person who's putting up the money has to be getting something. And what Wizards is trying to get is a showcase that their customers are interested in. And if their customers aren't interested in watching you play a team event, then it can't be part of the Pro Tour. It can be part of some big fun event, but it's not a Pro Tour because it's not really helping the sponsor. What about a GP? Sure, it could certainly be something for a GP because GP is much more for for the players. That would make more sense to me. There's there's a little bit of the pro level, but the money that they're putting up for a GP is nowhere near the amount of money that they're putting up for a pro tour. And they're and it's for everyone to come and play. The GP is much more the event where everybody gets to come and play, and the showcase is as much on the players playing, getting to play as it is people watching it. Being a deck designer is your signature on the world of magic, with your unique decks that took the constructed scene by storm. Deck building is a challenge for most players. Can you share what you do when it comes to making a deck? Well, mostly I fail a lot. Um, I build lots of decks. Most of them stink. Um, I listen to a lot of people. I pay attention I hear what people are saying. Uh, I think about how that might be fun for me. But a lot of it is about playing, trying, and failing, and then picking yourself up and trying again. Um, You really just, you need to just go out and keep trying and accepting that, yeah, you're going to lose a bunch. So what? You know, when, when you get that one big hit and, suddenly you've got a deck that's really, really good, you can go do something with it. If you never try, you never get that deck. And just giving yourself as many opportunities as you can to do something cool. Is that a problem with today's version of Magic? Because it seems like if anybody comes up with a deck that's remotely interesting, it gets blasted out there, everybody plays it, and no one thinks on their own. Is, are we seeing too much of the cheap mentality when it comes to magic? I don't know how much that's really affecting it these days. There are still certainly the people, like, that's always been the case. People have always gone and grabbed a net deck from wherever it was, whether it was the dojo or before that we had other bright, you know, we were on... Well, there were bulletin boards and stuff like that that you could use also back in the day. In the old days, people would look on the dojo, and then other websites came along. They looked on Mindripper, and the, the people have always searched for that and done that. Um, I believe that it's more of an issue of there's less reason right now to keep a deck to yourself for a big event. And there's also, to me right now, less big events for the average player. It used to be when we started out that every Saturday I would drive from San Diego to Costa Mesa and play in a 100-150 person tournament and just do this time and time again. And we, I could play either draft or play constructed Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. I could just play Magic just about whenever I wanted in real life. And that's gone away. Friday Night Magic has really stripped the world of the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday drafts and constructed events. And Magic Online has sort of replaced it, and it means 
there's no longer pockets of inspiration, there's just one big pool. And that that will affect things slightly as people don't have to don't don't have to build their own as much. But still if if the pros really wanted to they could get in and spend the time and do something dramatic for a format. Uh, and it would not be the same as what the actual standard Magic Online decks were. However, a lot of the old pros I'm talking to have lost the will to do this because there's no longer constructed only events. Uh, I'm hearing that the newer pros are still excited and that and willing to work towards it. But the older ones have just sort of lost the will to put in as much time as it takes. And that, I think, is sort of sad. To me, people don't see it, but the decks that you get at a split Pro Tour are just weaker than the decks you would get at a solid, constructed only. Having said that, I really like the limited ones, and mostly I'm sad the limited-only ones have gone because you know, if there was a limited-only Pro Tour, I'd be much more likely to make the case to my wife that I should go to it because I don't have to put in as much time. Like the, the difference in time between preparing for a limited event and preparing for a constructed event is significant. And for the, old, for the older players, particularly the Hall of Famers who aren't who just Life has changed for them. You you can't do it so well. And that sort of saddens me. Do you think that when you were there and John was there and Bob was there and we started seeing some of the, the older names come out to Worlds and it gave it something a little extra, like there was an extra punch to it that it, may or may not have had normally. Is that something that, because of the way the Pro Tour is designed now, that it's like almost making it more difficult for those players to even want to try? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, There's a counter to that, which is good. The Wizards has just upped the appearance fee for a bunch of us, but for a bunch of us, we're also just, We've made it in life in many cases, and for quite a few of them, they don't need the appearance fee. The appearance fee is a nice thank you for for quite a few of the um, for the Hall of Famers, but it's not it's not actually enough to motivate them. And I don't think any amount can be. If you look at the Hall of Famers and how many of them are self-made millionaires, it's a pretty good number. You know, it's especially compared to just the people, just your common person off the street, it's those people have really done well in life. Let's talk about that a little bit. What does the Pro Tour provide for people like yourself and John and other people that have been real successful in the real world? It provides a lot of strange things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Um, everything from name recognition and just some fame to, in some ways, it's a pedigree saying, yeah, you're really smart and you can really understand this. Um, there's also people come to the Pro Tour looking to hire people. I've I've known multiple companies that have tried to hire people at the Pro Tour. One of the most interesting ones I've ever had was somebody from Disney came along and said, hey, you want to work for us? And it was a the job he was looking at and trying to hire me for, I I was stunned at, but, and I didn't think I was that qualified. But we took, a, we took a shot at that to see if I could make it. And I would never have been given such a, such a really cool opportunity if it wasn't for people knowing who I was and just knowing that I was smart enough to solve problems and overcome the hurdles that would show up because I was not quite qualified for that job. But So that was 
that's a huge thing that it did for me. And getting into the gaming industry, if you want to program, knowing how to play Magic very specifically is close to being able to program. Wizards held their great designer search, and they hired, like, one designer and five programmers out of the top six people or something like that. And just, it teaches you to think the right way. It teaches you to figure out what's a good strategy to do in a situation, and it's any situation. Understanding how to think ahead and just the tactical and the work that you put your brain through, it it's really, really useful to people. And I don't think people see just how much in the end you can get out of it. We've talked about that personally, where you see people like yourself that went to Wizards of the Coast for a while. You work for Electrified Games. You actually got the ability to go into something like that with programming. What exactly do you do for them? I actually write rules engines for trading card games. Just we build... If you've got a trading card game, we would like to just come along and build a rules engine. And if you want, build a client. That would not be me, but the client part. And put it out on the computer. Um, We did we did a Pokemon variation. Not variation. We actually did worked on Pokemon Online, and we've done something for Wizards that we can't say yet. And with other other contracts in the works that we're hoping to sign, and they just we, we I just build rules engines, and at this point we've got a just base tech for um, continuous effects and triggers and replacements, which are in all games when you start looking at them, and understanding. Not human language, not natural language, but the unnatural language that goes on cards. If you look at cards, they're almost always templated so that they have the same sort of way they do it. So we can break that down and get cards into our system quick. So basically, it's all about taking TCGs and putting them out for for the computer. Now, we, we do other games as plenty of other things, but I'm primarily responsible for making trading card games for those engines. Well, there seems to be a connection with magic players and game design. Uh, Randy Bueller is a part of the team also. What is your company looking for if you're hiring a new employee? Um, The number one thing we're looking for is that you're smart. Um, After that, if you're a programmer, great. We love programmers. Um, there's, we have all sorts of positions, game designers and other stuff, but you need to be smart, you need to know what you're doing, you need to be able to be independent. And that's really, that's the crux of it. You, know, you, you want to show skills in what you're, in what position you're hiring for, but as a generic, smart, independent, know what you're doing. I'm going to go back to more of the team deck design concept. You worked with Z, Scott Johns, uh, Larry Janik, and oh, Sigrid Escalon. Sigrid Escalon. Sigrid Escalon were a tremendous team when it came to the design of decks. How did that work so well for you? What did they bring to the table to... Well, the real core there... Myself and Z, and we would sit on IRC and we would chat and we would come together with X and we would spend lots of time placing them out. Um, so uh, that dynamic was I was the guy who just tried any weird thing that he could come up with and see what sort of thing struck people as interesting and what things I could just make work and just basically ideas. Um, Zvi was Zvi was some ideas and more of a 
person who would who would solidify things a bit. So he was sort of a there's, there's really the two extremes for me and this Scott Johns. Scott Johns was a workhorse. He would continually refine decks, make them the best that could be done. I would just continually hop around, try this new thing, try this new thing, try this new thing, try this new thing, try this new thing. Make work, see what worked with it, what didn't, and just generate ideas. And Z was sort of a mixture of both. But the fact that I could get on and get a game with either of those two just about any time, have a, have a very good high-level conversation with them at any time, just made that trio extremely strong. Now, Larry Janik was and is a friend of mine who I would just play test against when I wasn't even sure if the, a deck was worthy of bringing to anybody else's attention, and I didn't want to waste their time. Sigurd, um, Sigurd was on Mog Squad with us, and he he was really part of the success of, of the world's team, where we got Scott Johns, Brian Seldon, and myself all up there. We went to Worlds with a solid, a very solid standard deck, and something that we thought was okay for block. We all did really well at coming up to the block part. Went home, went, went to the hotel room to play test block and went, God, these decks stink. <laughs> but wh- why are we playing this? What are we going to do? And Sigurd came along and said, you guys haven't been listening. I have this great deck. And we're like, okay, well, we're listening now. So we play this deck a few times and we're like, Wow, this deck really, really is cool. And it really was. And he pretty much did that entire deck on his own, trying to get us to pay attention to it. And really, we were hyper-focused on what we were doing with um, Standard. And even there, we weren't successfully operating as a team. Um Selden, Selden Scott and I, in that case, were, were really playing around with stuff solidly at Costa Mesa, and it was the continual play, playing this stuff at Costa Mesa every weekend, getting tight too solid. And we were playing around with the Living Death deck, not Living, yeah, the Living Death decks in, in Block 2, but the problem was we hadn't really spent enough time to look at the sideboarding, and the sideboarding, if you were playing Living Death, was an absolute nightmare for you. When, when a single card can just end your game, and every single person in the format is going to run it, and your deck doesn't do anything till turn five, and there's a deck out there that can lock you out before then, you're in trouble. And once we realized that, it was a very quick retreat from that deck. You have done your best results in Limited. And from your description of the fact that you're, when you draft, you're drafting to fill the deck as it goes along and build it as it goes along. Is that the main reason why your your successes at Limited were such? Yeah, that and the fact that I just, I didn't want to run with the herd, and if if I play a regular draft with, with without a lot of pros at the table, I, my record is nowhere near as good because I'm busy picking up the cards I like, and the pros are getting all the cards they like, and their decks are probably a little stronger than mine. But when you get a table of seven pros and me there are seven pros fighting over the exact same cards and I'm busy being left to the silly cards that I want that are slightly weaker than theirs but I get everything I want so by being different there I really managed to absurdly good decks and it it's just 
being able to make the most out of slightly weaker cards in a way that not, no one else is you in a draft really pays dividends. And most people won't see this because they're never going to get into an event where everyone, no one else at the table knows how they draft because everyone else at the table has flown hundreds of miles to be here. So it was, it was that outlook that really helped me limited. The, I'm just doing this strange offbeat thing and no one else is going to get in my way. When you look at a card as a limited aspect, and you may look at it differently, do you look at cards differently because of this? I do believe I tend to look at cards slightly differently from other people. I look at more of what they could do in the perfect right situation, and I think this screwed me up a lot for Innistrad. I started out drafting Innistrad and just losing everything in sight. I went to a pre-release. I won the first round thanks to the buy and lost the next three. I then played a draft and lost the first round. And what I finally figured out with Innistrad is Innistrad has a bunch of really sort of conditional things and it's got too many. And I, the fact that I fall in love with things that I could make work on the right condition, man. I had all cards that only worked in the right condition and not enough basic staples that were going to get me through. The other thing that I look at cards differently from is I'll look at a card and go, this card would be a pain in the behind to actually implement on Patrick Online. You ne- I'm never going to get away from that because uh, having done it all that time at Wizards, it's like you look at a card like, now what have they done to it? How difficult is that working with the cards with all the different rules they provide on it for you when you worked with them to be able to put it correctly in there. Now, I can't imagine the double face cars had to be a nightmare to program. I doubt it. Um, the double face cards is probably an annoyance to the client team because they got to go through and make them all look right. But the difference between a double face card and a split card or one of those ones that turned upside down. As far as the data structures are concerned, it's just two different cards that have this way of interacting. That that was probably not that big a deal. The ones that really strike you as bad is when they're like, let's create a new mana type when you're not used to creating new mana types, or let's go in and here's a strange replacement effect. Replacement effects can sort of be annoying. And like Mind Slaver, it's like what am I gonna do about this? That one was... But the good thing about Mind Slaver is you knew the effect was worth the effort you were gonna put in to code it. The really annoying ones is when they do something really bizarre and you know it's going to take you three days, four days to get this card in. And you also know nobody's going to play it. That has to be disappointing because amount of time involved with this. Was there a big reward for you when you got to see nowadays how big MTGO is and you know how big the Pro Tour qualifiers they are for them and how this has just exploded? Do you feel like there's a benefit that you've gotten saying that, yeah, I was a part of this. I I do feel that there's, I've gotten a lot of benefit from being able to say, I was part of Magic Online, I did that, and as much as anything, I know how to do it. Like, the job I have now, I wouldn't have if I hadn't been there and hadn't learned all that stuff. So certainly... It's at least a good playing job in San Francisco area. Um, and it's probably quite a bit more than that. Certainly, certainly there's plenty of goodwill from players and there's certainly, there's people who will 
it'll open doors because they want to find out, they want to talk to me about that time. So it, it's certainly more than that, but the biggest by far is just I have the job I have right now, which is a very nice job, and I wouldn't have had it otherwise. You are known on the tour as being one of the nicest people on the tour. You were willing to take me, even though you didn't know me from anything, to allow me to stay a little longer so I could actually have a little fun at Worlds. What does that mean to you when someone comes up to you and say, you're a real nice gentleman, you're a real nice magic player? It's nice. I really, I like, I like where that is. I like what it's, where it puts me in my life, right? I don't, I never have to look back at anything in magic and think, I did that wrong and be ashamed of it. I just, I don't have to. And it's always been something that's just, I can be proud of. And the thing that, we didn't understand at the time, if you look back. There was plenty of people who we felt were really dramatically cheating and just getting away with it. And in some cases, they might even have been. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them. Uh, and we would... I can remember after some events just being livid that there going to be a penalty for these people. As time has gone on... I think the, the reputation that people have gotten off the Pro Tour and the people who have people that have shown that they've done it the right way has been far more valuable than the 20K or whatever somebody won in a dubious manner at any event. It's, it's just amazing sometimes when you look at... Look at what that reputation can do for you in very subtle ways and it continually I would I am so afraid these days of doing something wrong and screwing up that reputation the it's it's a horror at that point I mean I, I, I did it the right way because that's what I wanted to do now I do it the right way not just because that's what I want to do but I'm deathly afraid that should I screw something up it will affect that reputation. And I can be a pretty sloppy player, especially once I don't feel that I'm in it anymore and I'm just playing to have fun. So if I think I'm out of a tournament, I make quite a few mistakes. And then suddenly, if something happens and there's a judge call, I'm very, very nervous because that reputation is just so valuable to me. When you see people getting suspensions for cheating, what does that do to you as a player? I'm happy that they're gone. They're not going to affect anybody else, and it's being dealt with. The most annoying thing that happened early on in Magic was you would see what seemed like obvious cheating time and time again, and nothing happening. If somebody's when you see somebody get suspended, okay, they do their time. Then they can come back. If they, if they cheat again, well, it's got to be worse. But you also have to say, yeah, they did their time and treat them reasonably. Because if you don't treat them reasonably when they come back, there's no reason for them not to go back to their old ways. And I think a lot of people miss that. If somebody's done their time, you got to say, okay, you were bad, but you were punished. We're moving on. Okay, then the case in point I will bring up is with Taito. He was due to be in the Hall of Fame and got put on 18 months or whatever it was for him. How does that change things for him? Because he was going to be in the Hall of Fame. And by his playing record, he should be. But what does this do to him as someone like you who watches this happen? So that's a very different problem. He's, if he's due to be in the Hall of Fame on a record where, it, where he may have been cheating and those, all those results can be tarnished, 
that throws a huge wrench in what you're looking at. Not just do you want somebody who who was cheating in there, but are his are his results do they speak for themselves or not? Well, no, they no longer do, and that that can easily make me say you're not getting a vote from me. It's very very damaging in my mind. What is the hardest part about picking people for the Hall of Fame? The fact that it's been so long now that I'm starting to lose touch and not know who these people are. Um, I look at things and I'm like, I don't, I don't really. However, the thing that I do know, and what I always fall back on, is I know what, what was important as a player to what, what you were striving for, what you weren't striving for. When I did, I did everything I could to make day two. And then one day I made the top eight. And I never considered day two a success after that. It was always, can you make day three? And it went from, you take a draw at the end of day one to guarantee you make day two, to you don't dare take a draw at the end of day one because that is a big negative against making day three. You just have to play it and win. Is there anyone that you see on the ballot that's not in the Hall of Fame currently that should be? Every year I have voted for Scott Johns and I probably will until he gets in or he drops off. Um, Scott has five top eights and really, really back then, top eights was the be all and end all of what we as players cared about. Certainly in the circles I walked in. Um, there's plenty of people I wish were in the top eight. I, I really like Kakra. I wish he was in the top eight. Do I believe that his record justifies it? I would like to say yes, but it's, it's not really there. The one person who's really stood out the entire time has been Scott Johns, because he does have five top eights, and that really was what we were all looking for back then. Why do you think they don't vote him in? I don't really know. Um, there were issues early on with how how honest a player he was. I never saw him do anything wrong, but I certainly wasn't watching him tightly at the very beginning. He did an awful lot for people um, when he was running Mind Ripper, and just for the magic community as a whole, his running of sites really helped out the community. So on a community standpoint, he was really, really good. On a deck-building standpoint, he he was part of the three of us, Zvi, myself, and Scott, who just really made some incredibly important decks for, for the Pro Tour. So he certainly got that. Then what is it people are missing? I mean, he's given so much to Magic as a whole and has the results to match it. I'm baffled by this. This is the same problem I have with why William Jensen's not in the Hall of Fame. He has the results, and yet... I think Billy's got four top eights, yeah. which is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, four top eights is really good. Um, but four is, is sort of on the, on the cusp of where people are. There have been people with four that get in. There have been people with four that haven't. There's been three in... There's at least somebody with three or less that has got in. There's a few that have really stood out without the top eight. Um, it's. I think there's an issue that people are just getting split once it gets, once it's gotten down there. Up four, you run the risk of being a a. Tiebreaker, as it were, 
with other people at four and just who who's the best one person votes this way, one person votes that way, and it's split. To me, Scott's a level above that because he's got that fifth one. Um, and a lot of these people have other events that other events that are, are sort of look. He's got this as well. Like Scott's got his um, the Type One event at Dallas that he won. Um, but it's there are many people that I feel that the whole thing has truly left out. But there are a few, and to me, Scott is Scott is there. Many thanks to Alan Comer for doing this interview with me. He is a well-versed man in the world of magic and has a tremendous story to tell. Now, even though we didn't get to half of the stuff we want to, he will be coming back again to share more of those stories about the tour and about things that have been happening related to it. I really enjoyed this interview as well. I hope you did. And again, thank you for listening.